0: Almighty God, we thank you that even as we are talking about the weather, um, and sometimes it can seem so whimsical, and then also things in our lives can seem so whimsical. We are grateful that we can trust in you, that there is nothing about you that is whimsical, but that you are sovereign and wise and all-loving. So we gratefully entrust ourselves. our own lives, and the lives of those whom we care about into your hands. And even now, we entrust this time into your hands, that you would make it profitable for us, your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So Daniel 8, a second vision that Daniel receives directly. So again, the first section of Daniel, the first six chapters, a lot more historical in nature, and also the approach is somebody else has the dream. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that then Daniel interprets. Or there's the writing on the wall and Daniel interprets and things of that nature. But now these two times in a row, Daniel has received the vision directly. And uh, and so he's talking about it. Notice in the first one, chapter 7, verse 1, it was when Belshazzar had been king. It was in his first year of being king. This is only a couple years later because in chapter 8, verse 1, it's in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. So there's another thing that has sometimes caused some perplexion, or at least some contemplation for some, is it seems like Daniel, you know, they, they've tried to say, well, Daniel can't be the writer of all of it, or things of that nature because he jumps back and forth. Well, that's all he does is he jumps back and forth. And so he kind of carried out some historical information, and then he comes back and, and even go. it's kind of a flashback, and so, therefore, he then gives some, but he's already given the narrative, the historical narrative, so now he's putting in some of these pieces back into that narrative. And so, does anybody need a graphic of the yes. of the uh, image? Courtney, you? I've, got I to go. I've got extras if you want okay. to know. Okay. Don, oh, I them in okay. there for him. Thank you. And then everybody has this section from Maccabees. All right. We'll get to Maccabees a little bit later. But first, uh, let's just kind of work our way through Daniel 8 for a minute. And we get some, some information from Daniel about this second apocalyptic vision. So in verse 1 of chapter 8, In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. So he's referring to the one a couple of years earlier in the first year of the reign. In my vision I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Olim. Uh Eliam, sorry. In the vision I was beside the Oli uh, canal. I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. And the horns were long, uh, sorry, were very long. One of the horns was longer than the other but grew up later, so it was a second horn, but outgrew the first horn. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, as he was thinking about this ram, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground he came f- toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. And the goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. And in his place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven." Out of one of them came another horn, which, was, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. You can actually pause there for a minute and leave that last horn to just kind of hang out there for a minute. And let's return to, uh, to our chart here, the image that started with Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. And even though he is long since gone, Um, God is faithfully continuing to carry out, in this world of men, uh, his plan. And remembering that uh, just a key fundamental piece to understanding this is that God is preparing the world for the coming of his Son. And so it's a perfect Advent theme, even though Daniel is rarely preached on in Advent. (laughs) Um, It is God preparing us, preparing people, preparing the world for the coming of His Son. And that is the same work the Holy Spirit continues to do today, is preparing people for the coming of His Son. And that's what He does. So as you can see there, now we got the vision in chapter 8, the ram and the goat, and how they line up with the bear being the chest and the arms of silver and the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the goat, which comes second and obviously uh, horrifically, I mean devastatingly defeats the Medo-Persian Empire. And that's the goat that tramples the ram. Nobody could do anything to stop him, to rescue the Medo-Persian kingdom from from, uh, the second kingdom, Greece, the goat, who is also known as the leopard. As you recall, the leopard, we'll refer to this again, but I'm just going to give you a heads up, the leopard had four heads. And now we've got a goat with four horns. And the symmetry there is important, uh, just to kind of keep that in mind. And then, uh, and so that's, you know, the second vision doesn't even, doesn't even include the terrifying beast or what we know to be Rome. So those are kind of things we're looking at. So the, where does, where does uh, Daniel see himself in this vision? Observing
1: everything. Well,
0: yeah, in the citadel of Susan, okay. right? The Citadel of Susa. The, that's the we know in other places in Scripture. For example, in Esther, refers to the Citadel of Susa and Artaxerxes, and the proclamation. You know, because you have that whole scenario going on with Mordecai being um, being addressed, and and having Haman seeking to kill him. Okay. Sure, There's okay. a couple of. There's one right here. Perfect. Um, so Queen Esther, Mordecai. You had Haman trying to dis- destroy all the Jews. Um, as we know throughout history, once God chose Abraham to be the father of nations, and then that whole lineage through Abraham down through the years the Israelites being in Egypt and then coming out and taking the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, all those groups of people, um, they have been, I mean, they have just had the bullseye on them over and over and over again, whether it be Nebuchadnezzar, whether it be his grandson Belshazzar, whether, I mean, it's just the Jews are always under fire. And now again, we're going to see where they come under fire again, even in the book of Esther, where, where uh, Mordecai, a Jew, who has overheard this plan of Haman's to wipe out the Jewish people again all throughout the 127 provinces of this great, great nation, kingdom. And so, um, but what we have is another explanation where God is faithful. Another scenario where God preserves for the coming of the Messiah, preserves and prepares. Prepares people. But so you have, again, the city of, um, citadel of Souza comes up numerous different times as kind of a, um, a central location of power among men. So it's one of these central places of power among men. And he's there beside the Ulai Canal. And so one of the things that we recognize is that Daniel is saying there's real places here. I mean, it's this vision while he's going to talk about goats and rams and, you know, goats going along the ground without actually touching the ground. I mean, there's some pretty spectacular things included in this vision. And yet he's saying, but I was right here in the city. I was right next to the canal. I mean, this is a real place and real times. And so there's the the combination of those things. I think there's something in that,
1: though. When God gives the prophecies to... Well, like when he gave the prophecy to Pharaoh that Joseph interpreted,
0: mm-hmm.
1: the seven bowls coming out, out of the Nile, coming out of the Nile. Yeah. So it's one where you see this vision that doesn't make sense, but it's happening in this place, so you know what's going to happen here. Right. And this, you have the same thing with Daniel.
0: It's an so anchor point. It, it, thank you. That was the word I was looking for. Oh, excellent! <laughs> hey, <laughs> we got a thing going here, Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> So absolutely, it's an anchor point. This is not—I mean—it it takes something that sounds again seven cows coming out and then mm-hmm. seven more, and the half the, the weak ones eat the the healthy ones and all kind of stuff. But they came out of the Nile. This is here, right? And, and then this anchors. one, you know, you have the ram
1: going north, south, west.
0: But we have a start point.
1: But you have the start point. Yeah,
0: there in this this city. Um, so excellent Dan. thank you for pointing that out we see that throughout scripture the other thing that we find and, and we say this over and over again and in fact the scriptures tell us how do you know if a prophecy is true or if a prophet is real it happens I mean there's a measurable component <coughs> right. to the prophecy I mean, we have 700 prophecies in the Old Testament regarding Christ and his birth and who He will be and how all this comes together and all of them about his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. All throughout the Old Testament, we know those prophecies are true because Christ was born in Bethlehem. I mean, even they say to him, they say, well, where is this supposed to happen? King Herod, right? Where is this supposed to happen? So they go to the scripture and say, well, the prophecy says he'll be born in Bethlehem. And he was. And so key, key importance. And so therefore it also boosts our faith, boosts and enriches our faith. What we're facing now.
2: Another anchor point, though. Anchors our faith.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Anchors our faith to something true, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So ultimately, it anchors our faith to Him. So I love it. Thank you, Dylan, for pointing that out for us. Now, there's two kingdoms that are emphasized in this vision. Hinted at it already. The ram is the Medo-Persian Empire, and then you have the goat being Greece. But as we read that, and I'm just going to highlight a couple of things again from verses 3 through 8. I mean, this is cataclysmic kind of stuff. I mean, what Daniel is seeing and and writing down, jotting down like it's a... (laughs) 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 Anyway, he said, these are cataclysmic things. And that's, again, a reference, not directly, but a reminder, I guess, a reminder that when he says, I mean, these are kingdoms are being changed so much so that the kingdom that comes in, this goat, trample Well, first the ram just tramples everything in its sight. I mean, it's heading all these directions, right? It's just devastating, trampling, controlling, taking over everything. But even that kingdom comes to an end pretty graphically because now the goat comes in and just destroys that one. Pretty graphic. And so when there's, th- you know, especially in prophetic language in the in the Old Testament, Jesus refers to it again in the New Testament where you have son, It's not shining, moon not turning the blood. You have the stars falling out of the skies. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's been a few days since without clouds, but I think the stars are still in heaven. I mean, we still look up there and there's still stars in the constellations. So, does that mean the scriptures were wrong? Because we've had several instances already when the stars should have fallen.
2: But the stars aren't the stars, they're
0: people. They're the rulers. Exactly, Mary. And interestingly enough, this is an important thing for us as Bible scholars to keep in mind. In the days of creation, what does God say when He puts the sun and the moon and the stars in the heavens? They are rulers. They rule the day and the night, the seasons. He refers to them, He says, I'm putting these here as rulers of the days. And things, and, and so from God's perspective, He's going to refer to sun, moon, and stars in this Ruler thought again and again and again. Now, the days of creation, I mean, he's talking about the literal stars and moon and and sun that he put in the heavens. But there's a ruler attached to it, a ruler idea attached to those. So now, whenever God refers to him later on as falling, as Mary pointed out, it's rulers falling. And so even in this dream, right, Nebuchadnezzar chapter 2, you have this great statue. But eventually, there's going to be a boulder that comes and all of them. So one ruler, one kingdom after another, they all end. But then there will be a kingdom that never ends. Well, that's what Isaiah says about Jesus, right? The prophecy is that he will have a kingdom without end. Changes in in authorities can be, I mean, world changing. I mean, that's the idea here. Cataclysmic event changes the entire world. If the sun, moon, and stars weren't shining anymore, it changed the entire world. When you have rulers like this, and their kingdoms come to an end, it changes the entire world. Done.
1: Well, I just I think it's fascinating behind the scenes too, because we see it in Daniel where, um, the Michael fought the Prince of Persia for what twenty-one days or something. And when he said he says here in verse ten that, um, and it grew up and it grew up to the host of heaven. So we know he's talking about angelic, the spiritual warfare and the battles in the heavenly heavenly realms, probably as great as what happened on the earth. And you see that in Ezekiel with... He says, son of man, speak to this Gog, prince of Rashmi, Sheketubal, who's Gog? He's, he, it's it's a, some kind of demonic force behind these the scenes, these heavenly battles. And even in the book of Revelation with the great dragon, it's speaking of the, the heavenly host and the battles yeah. that take
0: place. Yeah, and even even uh, Paul references that in Romans, right? Our that we don't... Flesh and blood. Yeah, our battle is not our against flesh, flesh and, and blood. blood's So always, I mean, we can't, and that's another anchor point for us is even though Daniel's going to anchor this to a real time and place scenario, there's, there are things happening that we can, we don't see necessarily. And again, Don references uh, this point in the next upcoming chapters where Daniel's been praying and he's just Seeking God for some counsel and wisdom and interpretation, and and Daniel now maybe he's gotten a little impatient over the years because he usually asks and he gets the answer. You know? <laughs> he had to wait 21 whole days. I mean, <laughs> um, and so when the angel shows up, Daniel's like, I expected you a little sooner, <laughs> you know. And his answer is, I was fighting demonic forces and I could not break through. I mean, we're getting a little, you got. You got me all fired up now here, Don. <laughs> Could not break through until Michael the archangel came and entered the battle. And I mean, this is, this is real. We may not see it necessarily. And sometimes our lenses are, there's all what's here right in front of me right now. It's all we see. And yet God says, there's so much you don't see. So much going on that you don't know about, including the fall and rise of kingdoms that God is in in, in making happen. And so so much to keep in mind. And it reminds me of something we talked about earlier in Daniel that you know if it, sometimes things in our lives are seriously overwhelming. The circumstances we find ourselves in just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Going into the furnace. Daniel going into the lion's den and yet God is with them Always, and He's with us always. And all, all of them testify that we know that there's something else going on that we don't see. And so, that's also, Don, thanks for bringing that up for us. So much going on. And there are battles happening that we know nothing about. But God is victorious. He's victorious through His Son. And again, it's just, so even in Revelation, you pointed out, the dragon, right? furious and terrible and all that kind of stuff and it would certainly appear like that's what would be victorious not the son of man who was born as a baby in Bethlehem and even we know this to be true from the way the scriptures tell us Satan thought he had won he thought he had finally been victorious he had tried everything he could and it was a much tougher battle with Jesus than it was with Adam and Eve and with us right but But in the end, he said, oh, finally, nailed him to the cross. And yet that was God's greatest victory through his son, Jesus Christ. So, again, we don't always see how God is doing it, but he's preparing hearts to to believe. So these cataclysmic events, verses 3 through 8, you know, it's, I looked up. And there before me was a ram. It had these two horns. It was also standing beside the canal, the same canal that Daniel was standing next to. The horns were long, but one of the horns was longer than the other, even though it grew up later. I watched this ram charge all over the land. Nothing could stand against it. But as I was thinking about this, right, Daniel, thinking about this, suddenly a goat shows up with a prominent horn between his eyes. He comes in from the west, he crosses the whole earth without touching the ground. The idea here, what Daniel is seeing, is so swift, just, poof, just comes in really kind of out of nowhere, suddenly, and what's that? It defies gravity. Yeah, it defies gravity. I mean, it, and it just speeds along, and nothing like a cloud. You just watch that thing, Why, yeah. and overshadow the whole earth, and uh, and so that's what happens next. And I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram, shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless. The goat knocked him to the ground, trampled on him. Nobody could rescue the ram. So the goat comes in. We have devastation, right? And this small horn tries to, you know, and when you talked about towards the beautiful land, right, Don? He says, so grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth. It is throwing other rulers and even trying to dispose heavenly rulers. I mean, this is one arrogant individual. And he goes on, right? Throws down the, heaven, the host of the heaven, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampling on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. <coughs> Many of the scholars believe that he's trying to set himself up to be as great as God himself. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of the rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifices were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. I don't know. That makes my heart weep. I mean, this is, I could breeze through that. I could read over and say, wow, that's pretty incredible. But it makes my heart weep that this devastation and truth was thrown to the ground. And and even those, which we're going to explore here in just a moment, I mean, those who were seeking to be faithful to God, martyred, killed. Those who represented the faith, just, you know, beaten down and so these are things to to imagine I mean this horn right I already kind of indicated I mean how how arrogant how what kind of a view did this individual have of himself to presume that he could take over the heavens stop the sacrifices and worship because remember I mean the Jews are being attacked here and so the the temple is where the Jews offered their sacrifices for forgiveness, where they met God. God had promised when the temple was built and when Solomon prays, there's this cloud that descends on the temple and God says, here's where I will reside. You will find me here. So much so that when Jesus cleans out the temple, what's his statement? He says, you've taken this place is where people were supposed to be able to pray, where people were able to be able to be in the presence of God, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. Stealing, right? Stopping what was really meant to be a place of worship and offering sacrifices, receiving the promise of forgiveness. All these things. were, And so this, this small horn thinks he can take over heaven. Almost reaches it, right? going to stop the sacrifices and worship and prayer and tramples the truth. So how long, right? It tells us, and then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifices, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot? And the answer is, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings and then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. So, how long? 2,300 days, but what have we learned so far? Your time and our time
2: are two years. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
0: we gotta pay attention to the numbers and that sometimes they mean something different than what our, you know, kind of realistic approach might say. I can look at it, I can do the math. I know how many days are in a calendar, And I know how long 2,300 days should take, right? That is at least by my Roman calendar, 365 days. Jewish calendar was 360 days. And then again, like you just pointed out for us, Jessica, is that what we're really counting? And there's been a lot of uh, curiosity about what exactly we're counting. So there are three main theories that I'll just share with you. dozen other crazy. <coughs> um, how are we doing on time? 20 minutes. Okay. So here's what we know. I'm just going to read you what these theories look like. So the first one is, uh, it starts out, what is probably the most difficult portion of chapter 8 is to interpret the reference to the 2,300 days. Three major but quite different interpretations and most of, are most often posited. In the period of time the angels is alluding to covers the time from the beginning of the desecration of the temple by Antiochus to its reconsecration by Judas Maccabees, then somehow 2,300 has to mean the three and a half years that the desolation lasted. So, Because there's greater time in between those two things. From the time it was destroyed by Antiochus or desecrated by Antiochus to its reconcentration Consecration um, by Jews Maccabees is more than the three and a half years. So, where does that fit? And so it must be this three and a half years in the middle. In order to be able to calculate that from two thousand three hundred, some suggested it's <coughs> half that number, meaning one thousand one hundred fifty. Interpreting the evening and the morning sacrifices, so rather than actual days, now we're counting how often sacrifices happen because we're talking about the temple, and sacrifices happen morning and evening. So it must be really half that. As two units uh, per day would actually be closer to the 1,260 days. So we're still trying to fudge the math a little bit. Joshua, my son, would love it if he got it right if he was that close (laughs) to his math test. Um, Am I speaking truth? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Let's see. Historian Josephus, as you are, I think we've mentioned before, Josephus was Jewish, but he was brought, I mean, he's taken captive at first and then brought on as a Roman historian. So he's writing it from the Roman perspective as a Jew. And so he has, Josephus has some interesting historical notes for us. Indicates, so Josephus indicates that the time Antiochus took and held Jerusalem by force before being expelled in the Maccabean Revolt, was three years and three months, using the Jewish reckoning of lunar uh, lunar years. You know, this computes to 1,170 days, which is not the exact figure, but still close. So that's one one try at, at interpreting the 2,300. Another theory suggests that the 2,300 is equivalent to 6.3 years. Um, that's just simply going by the 365 days a year. Or by 6.4 years, the 360, according to the Jewish calendar. In either case, it would be just less than seven. Okay? So, what did we know from the previous explanation of a time, times, it, times, 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 and half a time? That it's less
2: than seven. That it's, well, or less than four.
0: Boy. Yeah. Because that added up to the three and a half <laughs> yeah. periods of time. And so as we understand the, the use of numbers being so significant for the understanding interpretation, it's less than four. And four is universality. That's what that one means. And so God stopped it short. He let it, it went for a long time, almost right up to where it would have been universal. but God stopped it short at three and a half. Same thing here with the 2,300. If it's 6.4 or 6.7, it doesn't really matter. I'm sorry, 6.3 or 6.4, it's still short of 7. Complete. Complete. Perfect. So it would be less than 7, the usual number for completeness. This interpretation means that the reconsecration would occur before it was too late. Kind of the, the message here that the angel is giving is that it will happen in the nick of time. That's that's kind of in the vernacular, in the nick of time. And and so, sometimes, even in our own personal application, right? We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. But what God has demonstrated to us throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's always in the nick of time. God always acts in the nick of time. What do we hear about the birth of Jesus? Well, Paul writes to the Galatians, in the fullness of time. (coughs) Just the right time. Mary conceived. The Virgin conceived and gave birth to the child. And so this is God's pattern. Always in the nick of time. Just Just such a time as this. And it was just in time. Right? I mean we could we could have so much fun just going through the scriptures, every book of the Bible, and see this pattern of how God operates because what he's doing is he's strengthening our faith. For him, it's not like, oh, I better act now. (laughs) This, This almost got away from me. It's, he's got a plan. His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are greater than ours. He has a plan. Jeremiah, he says, I have a plan. And in fact, he says to, you know, Paul writes, before the foundations of the earth, he knew how he was going to save and rescue us. So he has a plan. And, and he never procrastinates. He never gets caught off guard. But for us, what he's revealing to us from our perspective is it will feel like, boy, that was close. That was just in the nick of time. And I believe that God does this in battles, as Don pointed out for us, in the heavenly realms as well as in king- kingdoms transferring from one to the next as well as in our own personal lives. What does he do for Job? In the nick of time just before Job's faith was to crater in the nick of time. And so God is faithful, even if it feels like any time God, any time, right? So, any, yeah.
1: so this was one of the, one of the, this was one of the theories? One of that? the theories, yeah. Oh, okay. So you got other ones to go? There's through. one more.
0: Okay. A third theory. So I've just given my, I've given it away with that explanation. I'm firmly rooted in camp number two, (laughs) theory Theory number two. The third theory is that 2,300 stands for years, not days, as it does in other places, like Ezekiel 4, verse 6, and Numbers 14, verse 34. So even though there's this idea of, you know, he says, morning and evening, really the, the way to understand this is years, not days. And um, and so there are some theologians that are referred to primarily as dispensationalists, premillennial dispensationalists, who measure the starting date as 457 BC. Hopefully these numbers are, if you need more numbers later, I can give them to you. Which is the announcement to rebuild the temple by the Persian King Artaxerxes. So right now you have Nehemiah and Ezra living in the land of Artaxerxes. And he says, go back and rebuild. Rebuild the wall, rebuild the temple. You have um, as um, just drew a blank. I'll come back to anyway. You have uh, the the Zerubbabel um, as the priest, and he goes back to participate in the rebuilding of the wall in the temple in Jerusalem. So if you start there, the announcement to rebuild the temple of the Persian by the Persian king Artaxerxes, and then the concluded date of 1844 AD. Um, This was actually a popular interpretation by a group called the Millerites in the 19th century, and also now the Seventh-day Adventists, who they, this is the interpretation that they cling to. They also believe that 144,000 is the limit to the number of people saved in heaven. And I think we passed that number a long time ago, so. My question is, if that's the limit, why are you telling anybody else? (laughs) Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> why, why tell anybody? Because <laughs> they're figuring what the, actually if we want to derail for a second, that we haven't reached hundred and forty four thousand. I was Apologies. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> we haven't reached it. Uh, from the Seventh day Adventist perspective, we have not reached the hundred and forty four thousand true believers. And and so they can, you know, obviously include themselves still in modern day that and believe that others can still become part of that hundred and forty four thousand. Um, many times it is, Dylan, and they're not the only ones who latch on to the convenience. Because when we're waiting, sometimes... In my experiences with God, he doesn't do anything that's convenient for us. He does what's best for us. And he does what's right by his own character. Right. So I don't understand that. There's only 144 oh, Now <laughs> we really have <laughs> derailed. <laughs> they're going to be really surprised when we show up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> But if there's only that many...
2: Then you have to do something to be there to qualify. Right.
0: Yes, you do. It's a works. Yeah. It's a work.
2: Every
0: other, every other religion is a works based religion.
2: Because yeah. I'm like, um, that doesn't even
0: out. No, in fact, some of it, as Dylan pointed out for us, some of the work is going door to door and telling people you can be part of the 144. Okay. Now, We know in Revelation, that's where that reference comes from, the 144,000. We know that it's 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. Again, numbers in apocalyptic apocalyptic literature are super important to capture what we're talking about here. So we have the 12 tribes, we have the 12 apostles times each other, right? 144 times 10 cubed is totally complete by the Trinity. And so it is the absolute, complete number of all who believe in Christ. And that's...
1: I would, you know, when I, I look at things a little bit different, but I would say if good biblical or prophetic interpretation would always be how did God do it before. So like if we go through all oh, like 300 prophecies that you could argue in the Old Testament about Jesus, they were very specific in nature. And a lot of them, if you read them... Or say the people that were reading contemporary or shortly thereafter would say oh it could mean this or it could mean that they were very specifically from the town he was born in to the circumstances of his birth and i think that daniel would be the same and
0: no i mean that's good biblical I uh, mean, interpretations we let scripture interpret I mean, scripture. obviously
1: like even if you go into into verse eight <laughs> so we have a have this man that was one of the greek generals this antiochus epiphanes or in different ways interpret his name but he doesn't fit I mean he he did go on and make a desolation but he doesn't fit this guy this little horn. he didn't come down line he was appointed you know Alexander divided those lines up we know in historical with four kingdoms so he did not like he came down he was already a ruler there and he was a son of a ruler who was already there so and if you go into chapter um, 9 that he makes a covenant with many, so it talks about this madness in this time period. I, I this sixty-two weeks or the uh, this this period of what is it, the, the, um, two thousand three hundred days? I think it ties to This is this is the this is a precursor to the Book of Revelations, so which is exactly the three and a half years. I think specific days. Every time in the Scripture you see before. When God gives prophetics about something, it's very specific. I mean, obviously there's symbolic things to give us clues like Jesus' bread and fish and those type of things. Prophecy does the same thing, but they were very specific time periods. And to me, Antiochus doesn't even come close to fitting this core. So,
0: well, you brought up some things for us, Don. Since we have four minutes left, yeah, I'm going so right. to have uh, to scoot along here and point out some of the things that you just brought up for us in just kind of an outline format, if that's okay. Um, And and what you brought up is important for us to keep in mind because we want Scripture to interpret Scripture. And then we see where it fits into historical rather than historical interpreting Scripture for us. Does that make sense? And it does. There is a tie-in between Daniel and the book of Revelation because what we see in the book of Revelation is the defeat of the dragon when Christ dies on the cross. So there's... There's significant things that have already taken place even in the book of Revelation. How do we fit all that together? And you pointed out something for us really important, Don, is that no matter how we do the math, the 2,300 days don't add up to a specific three and a half or seven or things of that nature unless we do some creative new math with them. Yeah. But let me give you what we got going on here, and then we'll pick up again next week. So, if the ram, Medo-Persia, because the scriptures interpret that for us, they tell us that the ram is the Medo-Persian kingdom, the long horn is Cyrus, and this is when the Jews are allowed to return home. Now, the second one, the goat, we understand to be Greece, and as um, we got here, this single great horn, now in history now, we understand that to be Alexander the Great. And this is when, as this goat covers the whole earth, right? Just shoots in, covers the whole thing, tramples out everything in its way. It's also when the Greek language is known everywhere. Preparing the world for Christ. Now we have a common language across the entire area. And then we've got these four horns that were spoken of four heads of the leopard, four horns on the goat. And as Don pointed out to us, there was a division. When Alexander the Great dies, we're not sure if it was poison or some other issue, but he dies. And he didn't have a plan in place. And so now he calls his four generals and says, "Okay, let's just split this thing up. And so you have four of them. You have the ruler in Egypt, the ruler who went to the east, you have Asia Minor, and then you have in Greece. So those four generals, four areas. But then you have this Greek little horn, not to be confused with that horn, the Roman horn that was talked about earlier, where you have the ten horns and then one boosts out three of them and things of that nature. This is the horn on the goat. And what it says, and we do, in second theory, (laughs) believes it was Antiochus the Fourth, or known as Antiochus Epiphanes. The word epiphany means God manifests. So he believes he's God. He believes he's God. And this is what he does. I'm going to leave you, and then what was described for us to Daniel, he he sought to abolish all Jewish ceremony. In fact, not only did he bring the Greek language, but he forced Greek culture upon everybody. He looted the temple, he sacked the city, he forbade them from keeping the Sabbath. This is horrific for Jewish people to be forbidden from keeping the Sabbath. It's what made them them in many ways. Um, outlawed circumcision, which was part of the, the sign of the covenant. They could no longer do the sign of the covenant for their children. It'd be like the, the government saying, you can no longer baptize. In fact, some people had surgeries done to cover up their circumcision, because it was a big, I mean, it was, you didn't want to be found. as a a Jew at that day. They burned the scrolls. They offered pagan sacrifices in the temple, and they set up an idol to Zeus in the temple. Seems like a direct correlation to trampling truth and forbidding the worship of the Almighty God, and if he had been allowed to continue, right? But God steps in in the nick of time. So thanks, Don, for bringing that up. We got to close. Father in heaven, thank you so very much for your grace that abounds. Father, this is sometimes, I mean, as Daniel's there thinking, pondering what this means, and then suddenly, I mean, this is overwhelming to us, Lord. But thanks be to God, thank you, that while sometimes we can get wrapped up in the details, you are orchestrating your plan, always, always centered on Christ. And so may you center our eyes and focus on Christ as well. In Jesus' name, amen. This
2: week at Grace Lutheran, we are having our annual canned food drive for the Christmas food boxes. If you would like to drop off some canned food here, uh, that would be absolutely wonderful. All of the classrooms have a goal of 300 cans. And if you know of a family or of someone in the area who could use a food box, please make sure to contact them and ask them if it's okay and then pass their name along to the church office. Also, Wednesday, December 18th at 7 p.m., we are holding our Advent worship service with Holden Evening Prayer. And this week's theme is Christmas in Denmark with history and traditions of Denmark with a dessert reception to follow. Also, make sure to mark your calendar for Christmas Eve. Uh, We have worship services at 5 and 7 with a Living Nativity and Candlelight. And then again at 11 p.m. with Holy Communion and Candlelight.